0: First Kings, Chapter 13. Did uh, anybody read ahead and read the chapter? Just groan, thank you, all right, right on, good for you guys. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We once again do lift up our nation before you, and we pray, God, for our nation to be united. Your word said that a house divided against itself cannot stand, and Lord, we've been heading in that direction for a long time as a country, as a nation. But well, we pray, Lord, that uh, we would come together, and more importantly, Lord, that our nation would turn to you once again, turn back to the foundations in which it was established, a nation, Lord, that feared you and kept your commandments. And, Lord, I, I pray that for our nation. I pray that there would be revival in our land in these last days that we're living in. We pray, God, that as we study your word, you'd speak to our hearts, apply the lessons that that we need to to know and to do in our lives, Lord. And, uh, Lord, that we would just look up because... our Uh, our redemption is near. And we just ask you these things in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. In the previous chapter, God has established um, Jeroboam as the king. The nation is divided. The nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, which is made up of ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the thing that God does, just by reminder, is that he is wanting to do, in a sense, the same work through Jeroboam that he has done through David. And again, all of this is because of Solomon's idolatry. All of this is because of of Rehoboam's inability or unwillingness to listen to the wise counselors and basically to go his own way and do his own thing. So the the, the nation is divided. The problem is, is that Jeroboam, out of fear, establishes idolatry in the northern kingdom. And as a result, we're picking up where, again, too, Jeroboam has done this, and now God is going to pronounce judgment against Jeroboam because of that. And verse 1 opens, and it says, And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah, by the word of the Lord unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So God sends a man, and he's coming to this particular high place, this place of of, of pagan worship, the one that's in Bethel. And as a result, Jeroboam the king is standing there at the altar burning incense on it. And verse 2 is what the man of God, the message that the man of God brings to the king, to Jeroboam. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child shall be, bor- shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, or torn in two, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. So he cries against the idolatry, and he also speaks of a future time and a name, Josiah. Josiah is going to be a godly king in Judah's history, and he's going to be a small boy at the time, and there's going to be a fulfillment of this in the future. And the point basically being is, is that it's going to be destroyed, and, and in a sense, it's going to be desecrated with the bones and the bodies of those that are burning incense unto these pagan gods. And the sign that God gives or says to to Jeroboam, is going to take place is that this altar is going to tear in two. It's going to, and again, too, you know, many, uh, these altars are made out of stone. And so, what God is going to do is he's probably going to cause some type of a, an earthquake that causes that thing to, to tear apart just to demonstrate that it's going to come to pass. So, when Jeroboam hears this message from the man of God, it doesn't tell us what his name is, we're going to see that he's a younger man as the the chapter unfolds. And in verse 4, it says that it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from before the altar. So this is Jeroboam, in a sense, reaching out or pronouncing judgment. He's wanting to lay hold upon this prophet. It reminds me, too, it makes me think of, again, too, the, the difference in response because... When Nathan the prophet confronts David, he is humbled because of his sin. But this shows the hardness of Jeroboam's heart and his commitment to, again, to committing this idolatry against God and not only that, leading God's people into idolatry. And so he's, he's wanting to apprehend this prophet. He puts forth his hand, it says, and that it dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. Verse 5, it says the altar also was rent or torn in two and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So God is quickly demonstrating that he means business. And the king answered, verse 6, and said unto the man of God, Entreat now, that's a way, old King James' way of saying beg or intercede on my behalf entreat now the face of the lord thy god and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again and the man of god besought the lord and the king's hand was restored him again and it became as it was before so not only does god demonstrate his power to strike this man and in a sense cripple him he prays that god would heal him and again God demonstrates his power to do that I mean just that sign alone would probably not only get the king's attention but you would think that that would cause him to again to think about what he has done and repent before God and turn from what he's doing destroy these these places of pagan worship and just simply trust in the Lord God is giving him an opportunity and that's the thing you know when we turn astray from God, God many times will warn us before his judgment comes. And he does this for the purpose of, of, of again, to hoping to bring this guy to repentance, and, and that's not going to be the case. I mean, he is healed of his crippled hand. But it goes on to say in verse 7 that the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward And the man of God said unto the king, If you will give me half of your house, I will not go with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that you came. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. So... The King is wanting this man of God now to come to his house. I don't know if he thinks that because of what God has done through this man, that there is some special power. I don't know if he thinks that maybe he can, in a sense, befriend him and maybe think that, you know, if I'm friends with this prophet, then maybe God will bless me or be favorable to me. But he's basically wanting, and again, too, maybe even thinks he can bribe the guy because he says, you know, come and I'll refresh you and I'll give you a reward. I mean, the king's probably got some ulterior motives here because, again, too, it's the thing that he needs to do is repent and that's not the thing that he is doing. But the man of God responds by saying, you know, you can give me whatever you want. I'm not going to eat bread or drink water in this place. The other thing that God tells him to do is the way that he came from Judah to Bethel, that he's not to go back the same way. In a sense, God wants him to take a different path home. Now, it's interesting to me because there are times in God's word that God gives his people or even prophets what would appear to be interesting things to do, commands to follow. And and I think at times we, we look at some of these commands and just think, Why did God tell them to do that? I get to uh, this uh, maybe doesn't fall so much into that category, but it got me thinking. But it also got me thinking about times where God has specifically instructed his people to do something or when God is wanting to do a particular work, he, he gives a particular command or instruction and he's wanting obedience. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there is the captain of the Syrian army that basically is controlling or dominating or, you know, has subjugated Israel. And as a result, though, they have taken some of uh, the Jewish people captive in Syria. And this Syrian captain, his name is Naaman, he has leprosy. And basically what happens is this little... uh, you know, this young girl who was in a sense a servant in the house of the captain says to Naaman's wife, if Naaman was only in Israel, there's a prophet there that could heal him. And he's speaking in particular, I believe, of the prophet Elisha. You know, if he was just there, this prophet could heal him. And and basically when word gets to Naaman and then Naaman comes before the king, tells the king, I, I Think that there's a possibility I could be healed from the leprosy if you just send me to Israel. And so Naaman goes to the king of Israel, and he's got gifts too. He's wanting to, in a sense, pay for this healing that he's hoping to get. And basically the king of Israel is thinking, what are you talking about? There's no way I can heal you. But when Elisha hears about it, he's, he basically says, send the guy to me so that he can know that there is a prophet in Israel, that God does work. And when Naaman shows up at his door, the prophet Elisha's servant comes out. The prophet doesn't even come out himself, and he just gives him an instruction, he tells him, go down to the River Jordan, bathe yourself seven times in it, and when you come out after the seventh time, your skin is going to be just like a baby's skin. You're going to be healed of it, of the leprosy. I mean, leprosy was something that was incurable, And leprosy was something that was fatal. And the thing that angers Naaman is he is thinking that he is coming there to be healed or healed by God or healed by the prophet. And in his mind, he's expecting some great way in which the prophet's going to come out and maybe you know shout or maybe raise his voice or put his hands on the the leprosy or heal him and and he just is told hey go and wash yourself seven times in the river jordan and you got to understand there are parts of the river jordan that are not that clean i mean they're kind of murky and dirty and you know sometimes we think of the scripture what it describes the river jordan you know you, we probably romanticize of how beautiful it is and and, and, and there are parts that are, or even too, depending on the time of the year when the water's flowing, or there's more water than you know there can be. But but you know, the na- naaman actually kind of says, there are rivers in Syria and Damascus. I think it's Arbana and Parfar or Farpar, the two rivers that he names. He says, they're better there. Why can't I wash there? See, he doesn't understand the command that's been given him. And he's angered. Because he's thinking that God should work in a particular way. And he's not willing to obey the command. Even though he's traveled that far, he's not willing to be obedient to what God is telling him to do. And I think sometimes when God tells us to do things, we don't always understand what it is or what God is trying to accomplish. But many times there is a purpose. And sometimes it's just to see, are we going to be obedient to the specific instruction that God gives us? even if we don't understand. There's an exercise or an element of our faith. And as Naaman is going away, in a sense, angry, he's not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. Stupid. Seems stupid. Some of those men that are with him basically plead with him. You know, if the prophet would have asked you to do something great, climb the highest mountain, swim across the the greatest sea. I mean, what would you do to be healed of something that was incurable? I mean, wouldn't you have done that? I mean, how much more should you do something when God asks you to do something really simple? And so many times God does actually ask us to do very simple things, but he just wants us to be obedient to those things. And, you know, the rest of the story is, is that after they kind of lay it out that way, he ends up doing that. He ends up going to the River Jordan. He ends up dipping himself or bathing seven times and coming out. And the seventh time he's completely healed and he's just rejoicing in the Lord that he obeyed. And he goes back to give thanks and, and again to the story unfolds from there. But there, there are other times, again too, I mean, why not just go there once and bathe? I mean, why not, I mean, again, too, you know, you could could probably apply that to just about any command that God gives. I mean, you could question or you could say, why this or why that? I mean, why put the blood on the doorpost of the house? I mean, what does that do as far as averting the judgment of God when the children of Israel were in Egypt and the angel of death was passing over? I mean, so much, again, too, why put our trust in what Jesus has done on the cross? See, there's an element of faith. God is the one that has chosen to work in that particular way and what's required on our part is not only obedience but faith, to trust God and know that he knows what he's doing when he gives us a specific instruction. You know, other places, Joshua, he's instructed to march around Jericho seven times. Why not just march around at once? I mean, why march around it at all? Why couldn't God just simply, you know, if they prayed to him, why didn't God just make the walls fall down then? And again, too, there's an element of of trusting God, obedience, and also, too, we're fulfilling the things that God is telling us to do. Stephen, in the book of Acts, is instructed to go to this remote place in the desert of Gaza. And he's not even told why, but when he gets there, he sees this Ethiopian with his entourage leaving Jerusalem and then the Spirit of God is prompting him hey go run alongside and when he does he he realizes that this guy is reading out of the scroll of Isaiah chapter 53 and he's talking about the scriptures talking about the servant that had been bruised and wounded for our transgressions and and that this man of great authority asks the question who who's the prophet writing about is he writing about himself or is he writing about some other man and Stephen uses this as an opportunity if he hadn't obeyed God and again it might have not made much sense go out into the desert what am I going to do out in the desert out in Gaza there's nothing out there But if he wouldn't have obeyed God, then he wouldn't have had this opportunity to share the gospel with him at the exact moment that he is looking for answers as to who Isaiah chapter 53 is. And he preaches Jesus to him. I bring these things up because, again, too, this young prophet is given these specific instructions. Not to eat bread not to drink any water and not to go back the same way that he came. And it says in verse 11, There dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the words or the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king, Them they told unto their father. Now, and actually one more thing I want to touch upon then, and it's the fact that the younger prophet is told not to eat bread or to drink any water. Why? Sometimes you can ask the question why and you can understand, but why would he be told not to eat any bread or not to drink any water and I think there's a, uh, you can actually kind of reason this out because you, you think in the scripture at times there are places where one of the things that, again, too, we see mentioned in the scripture is that when a person eats and drinks with someone else, it represents a, a, a fellowship, an intimacy, of breaking of bread together. There was that belief that if you ate the same thing that I ate that we are digesting the same loaf of bread or the same piece of meat together, and it's becoming an assimilating part of us and into us, and there's a oneness that, in a sense, we experience. As a result, the Jewish people would go to great lengths or they basically wouldn't eat with somebody that they knew was a sinner or that was a Gentile because, again, they didn't want to feel like they were in Close, intimate fellowship with someone who was either a sinner or a Gentile. Remember in the Book of Acts when Peter had gone into the house of Cornelius and he has to—he he ends up not only preaching the gospel but eating and drinking with them. And when he comes back to to Jerusalem, he has to explain, you know, to the to the believers, not to the Jewish Council. He has to explain to the other believers why he went into the house of Gentiles. So in the Scripture you constantly see this. Eating and drinking, and it's something that represents, like I said, uh, an intimacy. It represents a fellowship. It represents communion. And here's the thing. By the prophet being told by God not to eat or drink, basically what God is pronouncing against the king and against the tribes is that the fellowship has been broken because of their idolatry. That until there's some type of repentance and restoration, and really it reminds me of when we take communion. You know, the scripture warns of taking communion in an unworthy way, that we're to examine our hearts. We have to confess our sin, and again to deal with the sin issue first before we can be in a right relationship with God and then enjoy communion with God. Intimacy, relationship, fellowship. And what the prophet has told not to do is not to eat bread or drink water and again too I think it's God saying to not only the king but to anybody that's there God has broken off his fellowship with them again all of these things are for the purpose of trying to bring about a conviction and to bring about repentance I mean it should make them realize that God is wanting to restore that, but what needs to take <coughs> what needs to take place is uh, repentance. So he's basically he told he answers the king, I'm not going to eat or drink here. I'm not going to go back home the same way that I came. But in verse 11, when this old prophet that's in Bethel, his sons come and tell him about this young prophet and all the things that he had spoken of the king and how the altar had been torn in pieces and, and, and this judgment. In verse 12, it says that the father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went when, which came from Judah. Sorry. And it says in verse 13 that he said unto his sons, Saddle me the donkey. So they saddled him the donkey, and he rode thereon. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. Now, one thing I think of too, and this has to do then with the young prophet, the the man of God who's told not to eat any bread or to drink any water. One thing I think though too is if you're not allowed to drink any water then that in a sense there would be if it was me a sense of urgency in fulfilling the task that God has committed to me. If I can't eat or drink anything while I'm in Bethel then I'm going to go up to Bethel, do what God's called me to do and I'm going to head back as quickly as I can so that Once again, I could eat or drink. Now, it doesn't tell us why he's sitting here under an oak tree. Again, too, it may be that as a result he's weakened and he needs to get some rest. Or maybe it's the hottest part of the day and he's not wanting to travel during the heat of the day. And so, again, too, he's waiting until it cools down a bit. But it does tell us that then this older prophet finds him, asks him the question, Are you the the prophet? And he says, I am. Verse 15, then he said unto him, come with me and eat bread. Verse 16, he said, I may not return with you nor go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said unto me by the word of the Lord that you shall eat no bread nor drink water there nor turn again to go by the way that you came. So, good for the young prophet. He's standing his ground. First, he's enticed by the king to come and eat and drink and to disobey God's command. But now he is being asked by this older prophet, someone that in a sense has identified himself as an older prophet. He he probably thinks, oh, you know, a guy that loves the Lord, that's worshiping and serving God. I guess for me... It would appear to me that God brings this young prophet because this older prophet isn't effective or being used by God for whatever reason God has set him on the shelf. And it just may be that his heart has grown hard or he's not obedient to what God's called him to do. I mean, maybe God was wanting to use the older prophet to go to to go to the king and he was afraid that if he said that, that it would be his life or his head on the line. Either way he's trying to get the young guy you know maybe he's again to now the older prophet is thinking wow young man God is working mightily in his life you know come, come back with me to my house the young man says I can't. Verse 18 the older prophet said unto him I am a prophet also as you are and an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord saying bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water but he lied unto him. So he went back and did eat bread in his house and drank water. The older prophet, and this is, again, too, you know, you think he's a prophet. I mean, God uses him to speak his word. And yet he's lying to this younger guy, this younger prophet. And again, I, I don't know what his motivation is other than... You know, he just knows how mightily God is working in this young man's life and maybe he just simply wants to have fellowship with the guy or maybe he thinks thinks back to when he was a younger man and he was obedient to things that God was calling him to do and how God was working in his life and maybe he just wants to, in a sense, experience that or be renewed in that. Either way, he, he resorts to lying to get this young man to come to his house. And there's a problem, obviously, I mean, this guy is saying that an angel told me the word of the Lord. I mean, he's misrepresenting God. He's not thinking about the consequences to this young man. And again, as the story unfolds, there's a problem with both of these prophets, young and old. And again, the... It comes back to being obedient to the Lord. Knowing what God has told you to do and just simply obeying, following the command of God. In verse 19, that he went back with them, he he ate in his house and drank his water. Verse 20, and it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. Verse 21, he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Forasmuch as you have disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but came back, and has eaten bread, and drunk water in this place, of which... The Lord did say unto you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of your fathers. See, what has happened now is because of this young man's disobedience, he has ruined the picture or or the illustration that God is wanting to demonstrate his judgment of broken fellowship. He's ruined it because he came back and he ate and he drank. It's like Moses, and again, too, the second time that the children of Israel are just clamoring for water. The first time, you know, God had told Moses to go out and speak to the rock, and when he did, water flowed out of the rock. But the second time that they're complaining for water and that they they don't have any water, and he goes in and he asks God you know, once again for water. And, and, and the thing is, the first time Moses had struck the rock, he not only spoke to, but he struck the rock and water came out of the rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that rock that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness for those 40 years was Christ. And again, for me, it's great because there's three things that moved in the wilderness with the children of Israel. The tabernacle that they had set up, it would move. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, it would move. But the third thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that wherever the children of Israel went, that rock followed them as well. And that rock was the source of water for the camp. Two and a half million. God would supply water for them. The second time, and again, my own personal opinion, those three things represent the Trinity, the tabernacle representing. god the father the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire representing the spirit of god the holy spirit and the rock first corinthians chapter 10 tells us that it's jesus that again to these things represented the trinity but the second time when moses goes before god god says to speak to the rock he doesn't say take your rod and smite the rock again He tells him to speak to the rock. And there's a particular reason why God tells Moses to do that. It's because Jesus is smitten for our transgressions only once. He is that perfect sacrifice that died on the cross. He doesn't need to die over and over again for our sins. He died once, and the price that he paid was complete. It was full. It was perfect. You don't have to add to the finished work of Jesus on the cross And and, and the problem is is Moses is angry. I mean, he's been putting up with the children of Israel and they're grumbling and they're complaining and and their lack of faith. And, And when God tells them to speak to the rock and water would flow out, he comes out and he's in the flesh. He's just like, you rebels. You know, do we have to make water come out of the rock again? And instead of just speaking to the rock and asking God to cause water to flow from the rock, he smites the rock again. Ruining the picture that God was wanting to demonstrate to his people. And there's a consequence when you violate a lesson that God is wanting to teach. And the consequence for Moses is somewhat severe. Hey, you'd think, well, you know, come on, Lord. Everybody loses their temper every every now and then, right? I mean, the Bible says to be, sing, uh, be angry and to sin not. I mean, isn't it okay? I mean, every now and then we get angry about things, or every now and then, isn't our anger, you know, sometimes we'll say it's a righteous anger. But, but the, the, the consequence of Moses ruining this lesson that God has for his people is that when God tells him, Afterwards, I told you to speak to the rock, and because you didn't, you're not allowed to enter into the promised land. I mean, imagine the the disappointment on Moses' part. He had spent his life preparing to lead God's people, raised in Pharaoh's house, and then he had spent 40 years in the wilderness, disappointed because they didn't follow him initially, and then He had spent another 40 years leading them in the wilderness and bringing them to that place where they could potentially enter into the land. And then once they're at that point where they're they're poised to enter into the land, God says, you can't go. 120 years, you can't go. And basically the Lord, you know, Moses starts to ask God, beg God that he would allow him to go into the land and he'd forgive him. God says, no, don't ask me again, too, you know. No, you can't. The subject is a closed matter. For the prophet, getting back to our passage, he ruins the lesson that God is wanting to instruct his people with by listening to this older prophet's lies. And as a result, the Spirit of God comes upon this older prophet and tells him, because of your disobedience, your carcass is not going to come back to the sepulcher of your father's. And it says in verse 23 that it came to pass. And one thing I I will say at this point, it sounds like a pretty severe punishment, and it is. But Jesus says, to whom much is given, much more will be required. When you're representing God, you know, when you're, in a sense, either bringing reproach because of a disobedience in your life, then many times the consequences are severe. I mean, praise God that he... He's very merciful to us. But basically he's telling the guy, you know what, you're not going to get to be buried back home because of what you've done. And it says in verse 23 that it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled him the donkey to wit for the prophet whom he had brought him back. Verse 24, and when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him, killed him. And his carcass was cast in the way, and the donkey stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way, and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and they told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. So there's an immediate fulfillment and the judgment of God now upon this young prophet. Verse 26, it says that when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, it is the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. I, I find it funny how he just, you know, it's the man of God who was disobedient. Yeah, he was disobedient, but you know what? You're to blame as well because you're the one that lied to him. He's disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him. Into the lion which has torn him and slain him, according to the word of the Lord which he spake unto him, verse twenty-seven. And he spake unto his sons, saying, Saddle me the donkey, and they saddled him. And he went, and he found that his carcass cast in the way, and the and the donkey and the lion standing by the carcass, and the lion had not eaten the carcass nor torn the donkey. Again, it, it is a super. It's a sign, if you will, because again. The lion typically, if a lion's going to kill someone, he's going to not only kill him, but he's going to eat him. But because the lion doesn't eat the prophet and the lion doesn't attack the donkey, it is plain that God is the one that is, in a sense, responsible for this guy's death or the judgment that's come upon him for his disobedience. Verse 29, it says that the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God and laid it upon the donkey and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. Verse 31, and it came to pass when he had buried him, that he spake to his sons, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the sepulcher wherein the man of God is buried and lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Even though the man of God is disobedient and even though the young man of God dies as a result of his own disobedience, it doesn't negate the fact that God is still going to do what he said he's going to do through the young man. The other thing that, again, to the instruction that the older prophet gives to his sons, is in a sense this guy died because of him, so now we're going to take his body and bury him in my tomb. And when I die, then put me in the same tomb with him. In a sense, uh, I don't know, if it's just a way of saying you know we're together in this, and 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 maybe two, You know they're they're both guilty as well. Verse thirty three. And like I said, now we're back to the king. I mean, all these things the the king has witnessed, has seen. God has given him, I think, an opportunity for repentance, and and has even healed him judged and healed him and it says in verse 33 that after this thing Jeroboam returned not from his evil way but made again the lowest of the people priests of the high places whosoever would he consecrated him and he became one of the and became one of the priests of the high places and this thing became sin under the house of Jeroboam even to cut it off and to destroy it from off the face of the earth How quickly Jeroboam goes aside from the blessings that God wants to bless him with. Jeroboam is going to be the standard, in a sense, from this point forward because his name is constantly going to be referred to because he's the one that introduces idolatry. He's the one, in a sense, that he's referred to as kind of how bad the kings of Israel are whether or not they, they did just as bad as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, or whether, again, too, they didn't do as bad as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. But when it comes, to again, to his sinful life and his disobedience and his worshipping of these false gods, he is forever going to be named, and we'll see this throughout the Scripture, his name constantly coming up as the standard because of his refusal to repent, and to get right with God. And God is merciful. The Bible says that God's mercy rejoices over his judgment. God would rather show mercy. But what's necessary is repentance. Recognizing what we've done and turning 180 degrees from that and walking in a right relationship, in fellowship, in communion with God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, and for these lessons. Lord, I pray that we would learn from these lessons that are found in your word. And Lord, that you would stir up a hunger in our hearts, not only, again, to to read your word, to meditate upon your word, but to be obedient to the things that your Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts through your word. Give us a hunger, Lord, for your word. Bless your people And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen.